in the Garden of Eden, we get a glimpse of a scene that is perplexing to most of us. God speaks, and speaking for the very first time of a creature in this world to hear it, he speaks and all comes into being. In the, in the garden is established a paradise, a paradise unlike anything that you and I have ever known, ever walked through, or ever seen. He makes oceans that are spectacular, and he fills them with fish. He paints the sky blue and places clouds and fills it with birds, roaming over all of the earth amongst the vegetation and the lush habitat are animals too, so numerous that we are still naming them today. And as the hallmark of his creation, as the hallmark of all things that he's made, he makes man and woman and he places them right there in the midst of this garden and he gives it to them. He presents it to them because they are going to rule with a dominion over that garden in the likeness of how he rules with dominion over all of the galaxies, known and unknown, seen and unseen. He engineers them and so specifically and so wonderfully that not only will they live in the garden, not only will they enjoy this paradise that he has put together, not only will they rule over it with dominion, but they will walk in a relationship with him. They will walk in a relationship with him. They will have an opportunity to know him in ways that the rest of creation cannot know him. They have a, an opportunity to reflect him in a way that the rest of creation cannot reflect him. And so the Lord builds human beings so that he can talk with them, delight in them, and so that they can talk to him and delight in him. And how does mankind respond? Mankind responds in betrayal, in betrayal, in having a wonderful gift as that garden, in having the, the greatest of all relationships, an unbroken, unhindered relationship with God himself. They believe that God is being stingy with his goodness, that God is being, is God is being ungenerous to them, and they rebel against him eating of the one tree, the one fruit that he had withheld from them. And each of us, we are born in the lineage of Adam and Eve. We are born into a world of betrayal as betrayers of God by nature. So that in your heart, you resist prayer when you want to pray. In your heart, you resist hearing from God's word, even though you want to know what he has to say. In your heart, you are resistant to the will of God, even though you know the will of God is what is best for you, because you were born in the lineage of Adam and Eve. Adam is your father, and so you were born with the heart of a traitor. And this is why Jesus comes. This is why Jesus comes. Jesus comes because God the Creator, God the Almighty, Omnipotent, Holy, and Just 
Lord has resolved to restore his creation and restore mankind in a world of redemption that has been made new, that no longer will you be viewed as the traitor and betrayer that you are, but rather you will be viewed as a son or a daughter. And so Jesus came and he lived our lives and he walked in our shoes and he endured our struggles and he faced our persecution and he died at our hand because God himself knew that we were traitors. Today, we open up God's word to see Judas. We open up God's word to one of the most dramatic scenes in all of the scriptures. But as we read, we should be sure to understand who we are in the story. Brothers and sisters, we were Judas until Jesus made us different. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to read this together. We'll begin in verse 14 and we'll read through verse 25. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14, God's word says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he saw an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12 and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be, have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. It's no accident the way that Matthew puts together his book. Matthew puts together his book so that we will draw a comparison in our minds. He puts together his book, in this particular case, the sequence that he gives, so that we might see the difference between a true disciple of Jesus and a counterfeit disciple of Jesus. So if you'll remember what we've just talked about last week, we talked about Mary, right? And she comes up to Jesus while Jesus is is reclined at the table. And as Jesus is reclined there, there there at the table, she comes with an alabaster jar and it is filled to the top with an ointment that is worth a single year's wages over the entirety of a year. It is likely her most precious and valued possession. It was most likely that it was a family 
heirloom. And yet, Mary goes to Jesus and she breaks the top off of it and she pours it unmeasured, unrelenting over the head of Jesus, showing that in her eyes, Jesus was more precious than the most precious thing that she has. And brothers and sisters, that is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That is what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. It doesn't matter what your standing in the community was. Mary had none. It doesn't matter what, how impressive you are to the rest of the church or how impressive you are to the rest of the world. What matters is that you view Jesus as being the most precious in all of the universe, so much so that if Jesus asks you to give that which on earth is most precious to you, to him, that you will gladly and without question offer to him all that you have and say, Jesus, I just need you. I just want you. Just give me you and you can have everything else that I own. But this is in stark contrast to what we see in Judas, isn't it? This is in stark contrast to what we see in Judas. Judas wasn't just any disciple. Jesus, Judas was one of the twelve Judas had went everywhere that Jesus had gone. Judas had sat there and heard Jesus preach and teach. Judas had been there. Think of the things that he has witnessed. Judas has witnessed as Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and fed more than 20,000 with it. Judas was on the boat that night when Jesus was walking on the water and the disciples believed themselves to have seen a ghost until he calls and Peter steps on water like ground too. Judas was on the boat the time that Jesus was sleeping below deck and the storm began to rock the boat and the disciples became convinced that they were going to die until they awakened a sleeping Jesus who said, be still, and the ocean obeyed him. Judas was there as Jesus spoke, unlike any man that you and I have ever heard. Judas was there as the blind began to see, as the deaf began to hear, as the lame began to walk. Judas was there as Lazarus was placed in the grave and wrapped in the clothes, and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And, G and Lazarus walked out now as a living man. Judas was there for it all. He gave witness to the miraculous and divine power of deity in human flesh. And yet here he was, betraying him. Here he is, going to the chief priests and asking them, how much is Jesus worth to you? How much is Jesus worth to you? What, what will you give me if I give you Jesus? What will you give me if I hand him over to you? They said that they took on, on the tables, and in my mind it's very likely that it's the very same tables that Jesus has just flipped over in the temples where the money changers were. And they count out for Judas 30 pieces of silver and stack it up. It was probably an impressive stack. Exodus chapter 31 teaches us that in the in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of Israel that 30 shekels of silver was the cost of a common slave. And so Judas accepts 
Judas accepts what would have been about four months wages. It must have seemed like a large windfall at the moment. And accepting, he sells out the king of glory. He sells out the very one who paves his streets with gold for the, for the cost of a common slave. I wonder if you have a price. I wonder if you have a price. Could you be bribed into turning your back on Jesus? Could you be bribed into abandoning the call of Christ and the cause of Christ and the church of Christ? Maybe for you it's not 30 pieces of silver. Maybe for you it's, it's the right relationship. I've seen it. Time and time again, you have a woman in the church and she is faithful and coming and she just feels lonely and rejected by everyone. And she just wants somebody to say, you matter to me. I find you attractive. I find you desirable. You ever felt that way? What if Mr. or Miss Wright comes along? What if they come along and they show you all the attention that you've long craved? They tell you all the things that you've ever wanted to hear. And all you really have to do is just go where they go. Do what they do. Be with them. Can you imagine a scenario like that in your life where the right person could come along and take you out of the life of the church? Can you imagine a scenario like that for you where, where the right person could come along and you could find yourself being less faithful to the things of Christ? Is that your price? Is that, are, are, are you for sale like that? Maybe for you it's not a relationship. Maybe for you it's not the right relationship. Maybe for you it's the right promotion. That, that if the right offer comes, if your dream job, dream job presents itself to you and your dream salary presents itself to you, even if you have to start working 70 hours a week, even if it begins to consume and take over all of your Sundays, even if you have to put down the time that you spend in your walk with God so that now you can afford to walk in shoes that you once couldn't afford, you'd be willing is that your price? Could you be bribed to abandon your walk with Christ for the right salary? Could you be bribed to abandon your walk with Christ for the right job? Could you be bribed? Maybe it's not the right relationship or the right job. Maybe it's the perfect family. You want children that, like everybody else in your neighborhood, at least give the appearance and being well-rounded in all of the things of the world and that will achieve and get the right scholarships and have the right athletic opportunities and the right musical opportunities. You want them to be good at the arts and good at the languages and good at the sports. You want them to be well-rounded in all of the things of the world. And you want it so badly, could it be that you are helping them to be well-rounded in all of the things of the world, while at the very same time, you are keeping them from being grounded and rooted in Christ? Is that your price? Is having a family that looks like a Hallmark card worth your family's salvation, worth your family's eternity? Is Jesus worth that little to you? 
Brothers and sisters, I think honestly we must be true to ourselves and look ourselves in the mirror and wonder, what is it? Where are the threats to my unity with Christ? Where are the threats to my pursuit of Christ? Because every single time we choose between Jesus and the world, we are revealing the value system of our hearts. We are revealing the value systems of our hearts. If we choose Christ at the expense of the world, we have revealed that Christ is that which is most precious to us. But when we choose all of the opportunities and all of the trappings of the world over Christ, we have yet again revealed that we have a traitor's nature. Will you, as a true disciple, be like Mary and offer all that you have to Jesus and show that Jesus is more precious than the most precious things that you can have here? Or will you be like Judas and sell Jesus out for a cheap substitute? That is the difference between a true disciple and a counterfeit. That is the difference between one that can know abiding joy, eternal life, and abundant love versus one that it will be better if they are never born. Where do you fall on the spectrum this morning? Where do you fall on the spectrum this morning? The disciples come to Jesus and they, they begin to ask him, well, Jesus, can we go? In, where can we go? What preparations can we make for the Passover? This would have been a very, very long list of things that were to do. They had to go and, and get all of the leaven out of the house and have the bread prepared. They had to have the wine secured. They had to have a room. And remember, all of Jerusalem is at five times capacity. It's fixing to be race weekend here. And if you try to get a hotel in Calhoun County on race weekend, you have some kind of idea of what it would be like to, get, to try and get a room in Jerusalem during the Passover. And yet here are the disciples and they come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, we've, we've got to have the Passover. The Passover is imminent. What preparations can we make? Tell us, Jesus, that you have a plan. And Jesus says something strange to them. Jesus says, okay, I want you to go into town. And, and we get some of this from, from John's account of the same story. Go into town and you're going to find there a man with a jar of water. Just go wherever he goes. He's going to hook you up. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking... All right, I'm going to go find a guy with a liter smart water, water bottle. And that guy's just like, what? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? But you see, in Jesus' day, men didn't carry the water. The women did. And it would be an unusual and strange sight to see someone walking through the town, a man carrying a jar of water. And even though Jesus had not done his ministry in Jerusalem, even though he was originally from Galilee, Jesus knew what was about to take place. And he goes to the man, they find him just as they say, and he brings them up to a room where they will have the Last Supper together. The time of Passover was a time of intimate worship for the life of a family. It wasn't worship together so much in, uh, in churches or in uh, worship communities. Rather, it was, it was brought together in homes. It was celebrated as family units, 10 to 12 people living under the same roof. And if you think about it, it makes sense. This is what happened in the night of the Passover, isn't it? As the Lord brings and he is going to deliver his people by bringing them on this great exodus from Egypt and parting the Red Seas and raining the bread, the first thing that he does is he says that the angel of death is going to come over to break uh, Pharaoh's hardened heart. And if you will paint 
your door frames with the blood of a slaughtered lamb, every household that does it, every household that is obedient to my command, every household who places their trust in me, the angel of death will pass over them. And so here in this setting, you have families that come together to celebrate again that in their, their ancestors were in a home just like they're in on that night. And the slaughtered lamb, just like they're going to eat that night, would be the reason that the Lord would pass over them in judgment, even though they were traitors, even though they had betrayed him, even though they were unfaithful, even though they were sinful. And so you have the picture of this beautiful family and Jesus is going to use this. Jesus is going to use this Passover celebration to inaugurate a new exodus, a second exodus, a greater exodus where mankind, where his people will not just be delivered from the evil ruler of a, of a wicked empire, but rather so that they will be delivered from their oppression and the sin, the slavery to sin. That Jesus, just the next day, this is on Thursday, he will be crucified on Friday. And on Friday, Jesus will offer himself up on the post as a slaughtered lamb. And that post will be painted with his blood. And because of his blood, all who put their faith in him, all who obey him, all who trust him, the wrath of God, the justice of God will pass over their sin because they will be covered by the blood of the Lamb. But there's something here that's beautiful, that, 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 that is part of what Jesus accomplishes in this new exodus, that as Jesus inaugurates a new exodus, as Jesus inaugurates a second exodus, Jesus inaugurates a new family, a new family. A family that isn't determined by the blood that you have running through your veins, but rather a new family that has been established by his blood poured over you, cleansing you from your sin, cleansing you from your unrighteousness, cleansing you from your betrayal, allowing you now to be born again, born anew. And as you are born into a family here on earth, you are then born again into a new family, a spiritual family. So Jesus has taken this ragtag group of disciples. This group of men that seemed to have trouble getting along with each other. This group of men that struggled with jealousy toward each other and wanting status among one another. Jesus has taken this ragtag group of disciples and now he has brought them together by his blood and he has made them into a family. See, brothers and sisters, the church is not a business. And the church is not a production. The church is not a political platform. The church is a family. The church is a family brought together in the bondage of Christ's blood, held together with the glue of Christ's spirit, 
bound by his grace to us that we might live in an environment of grace, live under a roof of grace, go out into our community and challenge and undo their wickedness with grace, preserve the world as salt, illumine the world as light, that the family of God comes together, not because we've got a great show, not because we've got a great orator, not because we've got a great business strategy. We come together because we are built to gather at the table of the Lord and look one another eyeball to eyeball and be family, be family. Brothers and sisters, I don't know where I would be without my church family. I don't know where I would be without my church family. This week, I survived. I survived on the love of my church family. I survived on the love that I received from our elders, most specifically. That the way that that John and Andrew and Alan and Tony and John Hall, the way they have ministered to me and cared for me, In one week, my mom had emergency surgery. The next day, my daughter got over 100 amp bites. By the end of the week on Friday night, my father-in-law collapsed in our house and we thought he was dead. And every step, through every meeting, through every conversation, Every morning, I received encouragement. I received words of scripture. I received prayers. I received, hey man, we're here with you. You're not facing this by yourself. I've got your back. We're coming together every step of the way. Brothers and sisters, in this world, you will face betrayal. In this world, you will face wickedness. In this world, you will face the pain of brokenness. But if you live according to the design of Christ, If you live according to the will of Christ, if you live within the gospel of Christ, you will never face wickedness. You will never face betrayal. You will never face brokenness by yourself. By yourself. That you will face it together with the family of God. That you will face it together with the people of grace. You will face it together with the people that have been covered by Jesus' blood, just as you have. That you will be able, not because you're strong and tough and can pick yourself up by your bootstraps, but because you have been bound, you have been baptized into one body by one spirit and now are held together, bonded together, bound together by the very same spirit. Oh, it breaks my heart how many people, how many people just go into church is just a show. Going to church is just about finding the best music and the best speaker and the best lights and the best fog. And they face life alone. They face life alone. No, brothers and sisters, I want people that have scars like I have scars that will stand with me in the foxholes of life and face down the enemy in the spiritual battle and will hold me up when I want to fall down, will push me forward when I want to back up, that will say, no, brother, I am with you and you are with me. We are bound by Christ. Let's go and take down the gates of hell. As Jesus inaugurates a new exodus, he at the same time establishes a new family, a family that cannot be undone by our blood because it is put together by his blood.
but as beautiful as this discipleship community looked, it was not unaffected by brokenness, by the brokenness of the world. Here, from within this very community, a betrayer arises, a betrayer comes up, and Jesus stuns the group. They, he's told them for some time now that I am going to be betrayed. I am going to die. I am heading to the cross. But for the first time, he looks at his disciples at the table, and he says, and one of you are going to put me there. One of you. One of you that has walked with me, one of you that I have hugged, one of you that I've prayed over, one of you that I've laid hands on, one of you that I called to follow me and to, that I promised to make you into a fisher of men, one of you are going to betray me. He says that the, it's the one who has dipped his hand in the dish with me. This wasn't, I, I think in the past I've always read that as G, uh, Judas had his hand like caught in the cookie jar at the moment, right? Like, like there he is, he's got his hand in there and Jesus is kind of like holding it down. It's like, it's you, bro. But that's not the picture. That's not the picture. See, in Palestine, you would, they were sitting there and they're going to eat this unleavened bread. Now, when we take communion, is the bread particularly like, is it like, like an O'Charlie's roll? I mean, you know, not exactly, right? Not, not exactly the most flavorful meal you've ever enjoyed, is it? And so what they would have is they would have in the, in the middle of the table, and maybe we could pull this off. We need like one of these per row when we take communion. But they would, they would have this, 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 uh, this jar there, and it would have like a broth. And they would, they would dip the bread in the broth, and then they would eat it. But to do so is a sign of intimacy. To do so is a, a sign of trust. Because as you can imagine, there's a lot of contaminants that can get in there. And so you're sharing a meal, and they understood, you know, like germ theory wasn't worked out. But they knew, if I live close to you, and you have leprosy, there's a good chance I'm going to get leprosy. And so there was a sign. It was a sign of trust. It was a, a sign of intimate fellowship. It was a sign of a family that they would put their hand and they would share the jar with one another. So what Jesus here is saying is he's not pointing out to the whole group that this is Judas, but rather he is saying that it's not somebody out there. It's somebody that you trust. It's somebody that you love. It's somebody that you care about. It's somebody that you like. He, he is going to betray me. Can you imagine in this moment First of all, you have just the, the pandemonium of the other disciples. They're perplexed, they're hurt, they're mad, they're confused. They're all saying, is it me? Am I doing it? Like, they have a really good evaluation of the darkness of their own hearts here. And they're like, I don't think I would do it. Am I going to do it? Jesus, is it me? But J Judas has already done it. Judas has already made his deal with the devil himself. And you can imagine that in this moment, as Jesus begins to paint the picture of what is to happen, the cold chill that runs down his spine, the way the, the hair raises on the back of his neck. See, Judas, within the discipleship community, was virtually indistinguishable from the rest of the disciples. He went where they went. He did what they did. And not a single disciple speaks up and says, hey, Jesus, I bet it's Judas. Hey, Jesus, we've, we've thought this treasurer of ours had been stealing for a long time. I think it's him. Take him out. 
No, all of them are so convinced of the loyalty of the other men. All of them are so convinced of the goodness of the other men, of the devout nature of their walk with Christ, that they even begin to suspect themselves. It can't be Judas. I mean, I know it's not Peter. He's got a big mouth, but a good guy. Like, I don't think it's John. He's the one that Jesus really loves. Like, that seems like a strange relationship. Judas, he's all right. Maybe it's me. That within the discipleship community, within this new family that, that God is establishing, that there is one among them that is not who he pretends to be, that is not who he says he is, that is not as he appears to be. Jesus has often told us throughout his parables that this is a picture of his church as long as we exist before his return. That, that among the wheat, there will be some weeds and it will be hard for you to tell the difference. That, that among the sheep, there will be some goats and the shepherd will have to run, return and divide them out. That among the people of God, there will be imposters and counterfeits that will cause issues and pain and hardship to the church. But the church still will not recognize them because they will look the same as they look. They will be the same as they are. Can you imagine how hard someone's heart must be to live right beside Jesus and to hear Jesus teach and to even be there as Jesus says that the one who does this to me, it would be, be, it would be better for him to have not been born. How hard must a man's heart be to hear that every week, to sit at the table and know what is coming and to not repent or turn away. Brothers and sisters, there are hearts just that hard all throughout our community this morning. In fact, it's quite likely that there is a heart that has been that hardened, that has come here week after week, and you have heard the gospel preached, you have heard the gospel proclaimed, but week after week, your heart is made of stone, and the longer you come and the more years that pass by, the harder and firmer your heart becomes until ultimately you are so accustomed to rejecting and blaspheming the convicting and, and gentle call of the Holy Spirit that he is to withdraw from you to never knock or call again. Brothers and sisters, this morning, turn to Christ. This morning, turn to Christ. This morning, if you find in you a resistance to the things that are being said, if you find in your heart a resistance to come to Christ and to come before the people of God and to call on the name of God, if you find in your heart a, a difficulty wanting to suppress all of that, reject it because your heart is getting harder. Your soil is getting firmer. And eventually there's going to be nothing left but bedrock. And the Spirit of God will withdraw from you. And it would have been better if you had never been born. This morning, will you come to Christ? Next week may not come. Next year may not happen. Your college years may never be. This morning, will you come to Christ? Will you come to the gentle Savior that calls and says, I will give you rest. My burden is light and my yoke is easy. Will you come and be yoked and connected to me? Will you abide in me so that your joy may be full? And so Judas, trying to fake and fit in as he always does, as he always had, joins in with the group and he asks Jesus, he says, am I the one? 
Am I the one? And Jesus basically says, you said it, not me. You said it, not me. You know. You already know. Go. Do what must be done. But why do you think Jesus chose this occasion to share such devastating news with his disciples? This is the last time they'll all be together. This is the the last time as they head to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will pray and will ultimately be betrayed. This is it. This is a time of of intimacy. This is a time of of joy and and marching orders and, and instruction. So why did Jesus bring such sadness and suspicion? By by telling them all, one of you is going to betray me. I think there's two things that Jesus is trying to do. First of all, he wanted Judas to know, I am in control. I am in control. I know what you were doing. I know what you've done. I know what's ahead. And right now, I am restraining the legions of angels that are in heaven, ready to smite you and everything else that's in this earth. Jesus is the very one that will go in the garden and heal the ear that has lopped off one of his arresters. He doesn't go against his will. Judas' betrayal doesn't sneak up on him. It doesn't surprise him. Jesus isn't being foolish, naive, or ignorant. No, Jesus is going to the cross, and he is going to the cross because he desires to go to the cross, because his will is taking to the cross. It is a voluntary slaughter that he endures. And he wants Judas to know it. That even though Judas is wicked, Judas is not bringing about something that is contrary to the will of God or even contrary to the will of Christ. No, Jesus will go to the cross. He will restrain the fleets in heaven because he is a willing Savior. But he didn't just want Judas to know. Jesus wanted his disciples to know, I am in control. I am in control. That by this time tomorrow, it's not going to look like I'm in control. That at this time tomorrow, it's going to look that all hope has died. This time tomorrow, as you look at the at my blood streaming down that cross, as you hear shouts with the crown of thorn, but pressed down onto my brow, in that moment, it's going to appear as though all is gone, all hope is gone, and despair is come, and that you are next. But I want you to know that even with the cross, even in the devastation of tomorrow, even in the despair, even though it doesn't look like it, I am in control. Brothers and sisters, that is our hope. That is our hope. This morning, so many of you are facing situations and facing circumstances and facing brokenness in your life. And as you look at your life in this land of brokenness, it appears as though God has lost control. You open up your Facebook feed and you see the vitriol and the venom that people throw at one another and it appears as though God has lost control. You hear about the travesties that are happening in our high schools and the, and the 
things that are taking place at the places that you work and the poverty that is around the world and the AIDS epidemic that is spreading across Africa and beyond. And it appears as though God is not in control. But brothers and sisters, the cross teaches us as we look up to it and as Jesus' blood streams down it, that if the Lord Jesus was in control of his own cross, he will be in control of yours. He will be in control of yours. That the cross gives us hope. The cross doesn't tell us and defeat us and thrust us into despair. No, the cross holds us up and says that if Christ can use this, even though it looked like his demise, it led to his resurrection and ultimately to his ascension. And if Christ can use a cross like that, he can use my circumstances for my good. You see, Jesus told us that our lives were going to look like this. He told us that as we lived here, we were going to be wolves among the sheep, or sheep among the wolves. He told us that we were going to be gentle as doves in a land of serpents. But he told us that it's only going to be for a little while. He told us so we would know what to expect. Because you see, brothers and sisters, your price in the eyes of God is not 30 shekels of silver. Your price in the eyes of God is the blood and life of His own Son. So look to the cross. Look to the cross and have hope in today. Let's pray together.